Justin asked me, he said, what page in the Bible are we on today that I can point people to? And I said, just have them grab it and we're going to be we're going to be all over. So you can hold on to that Bible and we'll and we'll take a look at it. Uh, Lori and I met in 2002, in the fall of 2002 and and started getting to know each other really in the in the winter and spring of 2003, which is hard to believe is that's 20 years ago. That just hit me. That's something. So we were getting to know each other, and, and Lori, as many of you know, uh, comes from a, a big Boston Italian family. They travel in a pack, uh, as you know, even as you meet people at this church, and you say, oh, you're related to Lori too, right? And so uh, they, they travel in a large pack. There's a lot of them, and they tend to live very close uh, to one another, all the cousins and aunts and uncles and, and things. And my before I moved to Boston, my picture of of those uh, Italian families was in movies and TV shows, you know, like Everyone Loves Raymond and the Costanzas. And, and so when I met them, I thought to myself, wow, these portraits are really accurate. And, and we got to know each other, and she said, you know, all my family kind of lives in this area, except for I have one aunt and uncle that are in Florida, but they've actually since returned uh, to this area. And she said, I have another uncle um, that lives uh, in Omaha, Nebraska. Now, the interesting thing about that, uh, if you've never heard one of my sermons, then you don't know because I bring it up every single time, that I grew up in Omaha, Nebraska. So, uh, so that was interesting that out of the, the one uncle that, that lived somewhere, lived in, in Omaha, Nebraska, and I, she said, I have cousins there, and one of them's in high school, and I said, oh, what high school is your cousin in? Uh, Samantha is her name. We call her Sam, and she said, she said, oh, Millard North High School. And now I know Omaha is not Boston, but you're close to a million people. There's quite a few high schools, but that's the high school that I attended in, in Omaha. And I said, my sister is at that high school right now. And we kept talking, and she said, well, Sam plays the clarinet. And I said, my sister plays the clarinet. So I called my sister, and I said, do you know uh, this girl, Sam? And she said, yeah, she sits two seats down from me in band. Uh, and so here I am meeting Lori in Boston, and if that doesn't mean it's meant to be, I don't know what is. So one day my worlds collided when Sam got married because all of that crew in Boston boarded an airplane to travel to where I grew up in Omaha, Nebraska uh, to, to see Sam's wedding and to participate in that. And as we were on the plane and we were descending into um, Epley Airfield there in Omaha, we're flying over, I don't need to tell you, you know exactly where that is, uh, but you're flying in over western Iowa, because you all know Omaha's on the eastern side of Nebraska, divided by the Missouri River, you're flying down over uh, western Iowa into, into the airfield there in Omaha, and one person in our party, I'm not going to name names or point fingers or name names here, but one person in our party, looked out the airplane window and said, what are all those giant concrete squares of different colors down there? And I said, what? What are you talking about? And they said, what are all those giant concrete squares of different colors doing down there? And I looked out at the airplane, and this is what I saw. This is the picture that I saw. There it is. And they said, what are all those giant concrete squares of different colors down there? And I said, those are not concrete squares. Those are fields. And they said, no, those aren't fields. They're like perfect squares. And I said, well, we plan things out unlike 
Bostonians, and we make things squares, and we plan things out. And they said, those aren't fields. And I said, they absolutely are fields. We went back and forth in the airplane trying to figure out whether they were giant concrete squares of different colors or whether or not they were fields. Now, when you're on the ground and you're driving down one of those roads that make the big squares, it's easy to tell what they are. You can see exactly what they are when you're on the road. It looks something like this, right? When you're on the road and you're driving through. But when you get up top in an elevated view, things just start to look different. And what we're doing with this sermon series that we started last week called The Story of Scripture is recognizing that many times when we read the biblical text, we're down on the street level view. And we see certain things. We can see the, in this case, the, the corn stalks on the side of the road. And we can, we can see all of that. But unless we get up to the airplane level and take a look over the top, we're, we're never going to understand how they all connect together, all those individual stories. And I shared with you last week that somebody said to me um, before this series started, when we were in our Jacob series in Genesis, and Honestly, I was going back and forth. We had this idea for this series. I wasn't sure if it's exactly what God was calling us to do. And they said to me, I like when you preach, uh, all of you, Andrew and Justin and you, when you preach out of Genesis, you do a good job connecting those stories to the larger whole of the Bible. And he said, I've been reading scripture for 40 years, and I still really struggle to figure out how they all connect together. And so I felt like that was confirmation from the Lord that we should take some time and talk about the whole story. After last Sunday, I got a text from someone. And the person texted me and said, Pastor, I've been in church for 70 years. And I've never had anyone explain the story of Scripture the way that we did last week. So we've gone from 40 years to 70 years, and I'm very interested to see if we can break that, break that after today, right? Who can break 70 years? We said this last week. We said that the Bible is 66 books, 1,189 chapters, and one story. And to understand that story, we said that you have to at least begin to understand how your Bible is organized and laid out. And we talked about the organization of Scripture through some numbers, right? 5, 12, 5, 5, 12, 4, 1, 21, 1, all right? So if you were here last week, now's when you join me and you teach all these people that it's their first week, exactly what we do here, all right? Here we go. Five, twelve, five, five, twelve. Oh, with energy, 4-1-21-1. All right. We got to say it like it's not raining and cloudy outside. All right. So 5-12-5-5-12-4-1-21-1. And what we're talking about there is that your Bible, I mean, it feels like it should be chronological, doesn't it? Because you start over here, and you start with the book of Genesis, and it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So it feels like it's, it's starting chronologically, and then you get 
over here, and at the very end, you have the book of Revelation, and if you get to the end of the book, it talks about the creation of the new heaven and the new earth, and the end of all things, or the beginning of all things, the way you look at it, and, and so it feels like it's, it's chronologically organized, but your Bible is, is actually organized by, by literary genre, and it's an important thing to understand. And so we talked and we said that that first five is the, is the Torah or the law, the books of Moses. The next 12 are the history, is the history of mostly of the Israelites. And it's all theology. There's theology through it. Through the whole story, we learn about who God is. The next five is poetry. Sometimes they're called uh, wisdom literature. The next five are the major prophets. And then the final 12 are the minor prophets. And here's the thing that you have to remember when you think about the Bible chronologically is you pick up those five books of poetry and the major and the minor prophets, you pick them up, and you take them, and you drop them into those history books. That's when all of those things are written, is in those 12 history books, all of those prophet books. And then we said, between the 12 and the 4, which is the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, there's about how many years? About 400 years, right? 400-ish. I liked that answer last week. And so then we have four, that's the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, story, the, the uh, telling of, of Christ's ministry on this earth. Jesus is walking on this earth. One book of church history, which is the book of Acts. 21 letters written to early Christians in the early church. I wish I could tell you you could pick up those 21 letters and drop them into the book of Acts, but it's not that clean. Uh, and so there's 21 letters. And then you have one book of prophecy apocryphal literature, things that have yet to occur, and that is the book of Revelation. And so we have eight weeks, eight weeks to get that drone view, that airplane view, to get up above the fields and to see how it all connects. And we've got eight weeks to go from here uh, to there. And so if this is our, our sort of our journey along the story of Scripture, last week we started. And at the end of last week, we got uh, somewhere about right here uh, at the end of last week. So we have seven weeks now. I hope to, uh, by the end of today, uh, get you to here. And there's a reason why we're spending so much time out of the eight weeks uh, down here. If you don't understand the reasons for the first five books in the Scripture— and what we're learning about the person of God, you will not understand any of the rest of it. We like to go in here to the Gospels and the letters, and rightly so, and find the verses that we put on coffee mugs or in Jeremiah, the major prophets, or in Proverbs and Psalms. We find all of those great verses that we put on sticky notes and keep in front of us, and, and I'm all for that. The challenge that we face is unless we really understand what God is doing here, we, we can't fully understand where those, those verses are coming from, why David is writing what he's writing in the book of Psalms, why even some of the Psalms are, are written by Moses, why Moses is saying what he's saying in the book of Psalms, why Solomon is saying what he's saying in the book of Proverbs, why Paul is saying what he's saying in his letters to the church. So we got to understand what's happening here. And we started in Genesis 1 through 11 last week. And we said that Genesis 1 through 11 begins to answer some of life's most important questions. That there is the answer to origin, 
which is in Genesis 1-1. There is the, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. There is value. Where does your value come from as a person? Well, you are created in the image of God. There is purpose, Genesis 1-28. Jasmine, I'll move, this, I'll move this up, okay, so we can see it a little bit more. There's Genesis 1:28 that talks about purpose, which is God has given us uh, the ability uh, to rule over creation and to have dominion, Scripture says, and to create. There is the answer of pain, which we see in Genesis 3 through 11, begins in Genesis 3 with Adam and Eve breaking uh, their relationship with God through sin, and that pain just continues throughout Genesis 11. And then finally, we talked about hope, that there is hope in these chapters. That in Genesis 3, verse 15, God begins to point to a plan that he has to make right what has been made wrong. And even in that genealogy in Genesis chapter 5, that there's this man, Enoch, that gets pointed back to even in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, and is saying that, that if you walk with God, you can be with him. And that's what we said the whole story of Scripture is. I think that there's a variety of ways that we could try and summarize the story of Scripture. I think one way to say it is that so the story of Scripture is our need for a Savior and God's provision of one. And what we've been saying through this series is that another way you could say that is that the story of Scripture is God with us so that we can be with Him. God was with Adam and Eve in the garden. Everything existed in perfect harmony. Now all of that is broken. And we see that begin to spiral through Genesis 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11. And the big question we have at Genesis 11 at the very end there is how in the world is God going to begin to rectify this? If anything's going to begin to change, it is God who needs to do the work. And what I want to talk about today, and I recognize that in this series, there's, there's a healthy level of teaching, right? So I'm just going to embrace it and have the whiteboard here. We're going to do some teaching. But it all comes back to preaching. All of this is theology. All of this is our understanding of who God is and how he works and I heard a pastor say this week, he said, every single time I have sinned or gone the wrong way in my life, it's because I've forgotten who God is and how he works. And so it's really important that we get back to this story and understand exactly who God is and how he works so that we can be in relationship with him the way he calls us to be. And that's what we're going to talk a little bit about today. What we begin to see Right in Genesis 12. So Genesis 11, you have, uh, things are not looking good. What we see in Genesis 12 is that God begins to reveal that the solution to a broken world is a covenant God. The solution to a broken world is a covenant God. You cannot understand the relationship that God wants to have with you if you do not understand covenant. We talk about 
a personal relationship with Jesus Christ in our stream of faith. And many of you have heard that. But I think what we mean by personal relationship with Jesus Christ is a little bit different than what God sets up and what he calls us to. In fact, we end up saying personal relationship with Jesus Christ, and it, it becomes fairly casual in the way that we view that. It means God wants to be your buddy, and God wants to be your friend. And we sing, I am a friend of God, right? Which is very catchy, but theologically very weak. What God wants is not necessarily a, not a, he wants a personal relationship with you, but it's more than that. God desires a covenantal relationship with you. That's what the desire is. And we don't really use that word that often. It's personal. A covenant relationship absolutely is personal. But there's a depth to it that the phrase personal relationship I don't think properly captures. Or perhaps it did in the beginning and it's been watered down over time. This idea of a, of a covenantal relationship with God, what does that mean? Our relationships are very consumeristic. That's, that's our relationships day to day in our world. We're very consumeristic. And uh, consumeristic, consumerist relationships are governed by contracts, uh, which is very clearly, we have a relationship as long as we both are providing goods and services or dollar amounts that, are, that, are, that match up to this contract. Uh, and so when you go into uh, your cell phone company, you don't have a covenant relationship with your cell phone company. You have a consumerist relationship with your cell phone company. And they say, pay us this amount of money and we'll let you make calls and crush candy wherever you want. And you say, that sounds great. And so you start paying them money and they let you crush the candy. And uh, at some point, if the service doesn't match up to what you feel like you're paying for, you can go. And if you stop paying them, they're done with you. That's consumerism. Covenant is something different. A covenantal relationship is really a blend. Covenantal relationship is a blend of two things, law and love. Covenant relationship is a blend of law and love. It's the best way I can, I can think of to describe that. There's a, there's a bond in a covenant that goes beyond how I feel in the moment or whether or not you're living up to your end of the bargain. In a covenant, it's a formal arrangement between two parties that are, that are working towards a common goal. And so in the ancient world, covenants may have been formed by, by different leaders of, of people groups or nations, and they're covenanting together toward their safety for one another. And even if, if one of them sort of fails in the midst of that covenant, it's personal, it's a bond, and, and out of love and, and commitment to one another, they're still going to, if one of them gets attacked, uh, honor the covenant that they have made with each other. When God deals with his people, he uses this word to describe the relationship that he is making with his people. We have some covenants in our world today. The easiest one to point to is the covenant of marriage. And in the covenant of marriage, you're creating a, a bond, an agreement. There is legality to marriage, and there is love 
in marriage. And what we're saying in those vows is, hey, uh, if life's great or if life's tough, if you're sick or if you're well, regardless of what life circumstances throw at us, I am vowing in this moment to love you and be committed to you regardless of what, thing, what life throws our way. There's a, there's a bond to that. One of the challenges that we face in our current culture is that what should be covenantal relationships among us are sliding into consumerist relationships. This is why covenant's really difficult for us to understand. Our marriages are becoming consumerist. They're not covenantal anymore. They are, they are, I'm with you until I don't really like you. Or I'm with you as long as you make me feel good. That's consumerist relationship. Our friendships should be more covenantal than they are usually. We are friends as long as you're providing me a certain level of value or we're working on a project together. But once that is over, uh, the relationship is dissolving. And we don't say that formally, but that's what happens because we're consumerist in our relationships. One of the places that it happens too is right here in the church body. God calls us into covenantal relationship with each other. But, but we act as if it's consumerist, where if I'm not receiving the goods and services or if the people aren't doing certain things, then, you know, that's, I'll, I'll find somewhere that fits, fits my need. All of these are, are cons- designed by God to be more covenantal relationships. David and Jonathan in the Old Testament made a covenant with one, one another as friends, and, and yet everything slides towards consumerism. So we have to understand, if we're going to understand what's going on in Scripture, we have to understand what does this word mean, this idea of covenant. Now, in the Bible, after Genesis 11, after Genesis 11, fast forward us, because some of you are going to say, wait, doesn't God have a covenant with, with Adam? And doesn't God have a covenant with Noah? Yes, but those all happen before Genesis 11. I want to talk about the covenants as we go forward here that happen after Genesis 11, and there are four of them. There is a covenant that is made with a man named Abraham. There is a covenant that is made with a man uh, named Moses. Then there is the Davidic covenant, the covenant made with David. And then there is the new covenant. So today we're going to talk about two of these. You have Abraham, Moses, David, new. We're going to talk about two of them. We're going to talk about Abraham, and we are going to talk about Moses. And by the time we're through our time together this morning, uh, we will be at the end of those first five books in our, in our walk. We ready to jump into history next week. In Genesis chapter 12, I'm in Genesis chapter 12, chapter 15 and chapter 17, you have the covenant that is made with a man named Abraham. And if you were to look in Genesis chapter 17 at the beginning of this book, you would read these words. It says this in Genesis 17, verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you, and you may multiply greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, 
My covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring and after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And in the covenant with Abraham, you have both law and you have love. It's okay. And under the law, you have God saying to Abraham, or Abram, if you look throughout the chapters, you have him saying... Um, you need to trust me. You need to follow me, he says, he says to, uh, to Abram. But under love, the love is so clear in this covenant that this is God's work with Abraham. The love shines through in this covenant where God says, listen, Abram, I'm, I'm going to do this for you. And I'm going to make, make you a nation. I'm going to give you people. Amazing, because Abraham is childless at this point. And I'm going to give you land. And I'm doing it. I'm, I'm just asking you to trust me and follow me where I take you, but I'm going to give you people and land. And then he says this, especially in Genesis 12. He says, I'm going to bless the world through you, Abraham. Like all nations. Everybody. By the way, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you are blessed because of this covenant. All nations, all people for all time, Abraham. And I'm going to do this. And hear the love of God. It just shines through in this covenant with Abraham as he promises what he will do. But then you have over here with Moses... Give a little bit of a different feel. This covenant is made in, in probably the, the clearest place you could look, I think, is, is Exodus chapter 19. And in Exodus chapter 19, they're at Mount Sinai there, and God comes to Moses, and he, he has a word for his people. And what becomes clear through Exodus chapter 19 is also... That God has love for his people. In fact, he says in Exodus chapter 19 that he is going to make them a holy nation. This is exactly what he says. It says in Exodus chapter 19 verse 3, While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. If you remember, the Israelites were in slavery. God, with Moses as their leader, led them out of slavery, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possessions among all peoples. For the earth is mine, 
and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Angie, go back to verse 5 there real quick, okay? Because the love comes through in this, in this. I am going to create. This is how God says over and over again in the covenants. This is how you know I want to be with you. I'm going to make you my people. I'm going to set you apart as my people. He says it to Abraham. He says it again to Moses, right? Here's the love. You'll be my holy nation, right? You'll be my people. But I'll tell you what really comes through in the Mosaic Covenant is the law. God says, you will be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. I'll be your God. You will be my people. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will be with you. But here's the deal. You need to obey my voice and keep my covenant if you want to be my treasured possession. And I don't know if you've ever sat down and read the book of Leviticus. I don't know if you've ever gone through the book of Deuteronomy. That's where many of you quit your year in the Bible year plan. You make it all the way to Genesis 7, or January 17. And then you get to Leviticus and you get in those books and you say, what in the world is this all about? The law comes through and it's not just the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are part of the law. Ten Commandments are really important. But underneath that, you have all of the Levitical law. You have things that, that theologians will call the, the moral law and the civil law and the ceremonial law. And then there's the challenge of what is binding today and what is not binding today. And why is it that God calls his people to do all of these things that seem so odd to us? What is God up to in all of that? And why would God say, you have to keep this law in order to be my treasured possession? Well, we certainly don't have time to go through it all. But the law reveals a couple of things. It reveals God's holiness and what is holy and what is not. What is pure and what is profane. The law begins to reveal that. The law also begins to set apart the nation of Israel as different than the people around them. And so some of the things that get brought up, and sometimes people will bring these up in a very flippant, casual way. Sometimes these are, these are a reason why people reject Scripture, or at least they use it that way in an argument. Oh, you better not wear clothes that are from multiple fibers. That's the law. But why is God calling his people to do that? Not because in today's day and age you can't wear a nice poly-cotton poly blend. He's trying to set his people apart from the nations that surround them. And the way that they dress, the way that they act, the way that they live, part of this is because of God's holiness, but part of it is so that his people will be set apart from the nations that live around them. And the people will look and they will say, there is something different about those Israelites and the Hebrew people. What is different about them? And they will say, Yahweh is different about us. God is different about us. It's an oversimplification of all the laws that are there, but you understand what, what I'm getting to. I know it can be confusing, but this is what God is doing. He's revealing his nature, revealing his character, setting his people apart. But there is more love here in this covenant. 
Because God knows that his people are not going to be able to do this. There's no possible way that you and I can live up to God's standard. In fact, the one thing the law does is reveal how terrible humans are at keeping God's law. The Apostle Paul talks a lot about that in the book of Romans, Galatians. He's like, I'll tell you what the law did for us. It revealed that we stink at keeping the law, that we can't do it, that God's standards are too high, that we're all failures at doing what God calls us to do. And so there is love in this covenant, and the love, and I know this is going to sound weird, but the love comes in the sacrificial system. Okay? And you read all that stuff in the book of Leviticus, and you say, I don't understand. they got to bring two pigeons and three goats. And, and what God is doing is he's revealing some more things about him. Self. That sin is serious. That our decision to break God's law, that the penalty of that is death. Not the death of a goat. My death. The lawbreaker. But God already said in his covenant to Noah that he wasn't going to destroy humanity again. So he makes, he makes a conditional system here where he says, when you sin, the penalty of that should be your death. You have fallen short of what I've called you to. You have broken the covenant we've made. But I'm going to provide a temporary way for blood to be shed and your life to be spared. This is Christ, God's grace to his people, his grace poured out that their lives might be spared and they might continue with God even in the midst of their sin. The big problem with this whole system, like I said before, is it just reveals how short we fall. Because the people, if you start looking throughout the history books that we'll get into, not only did they not keep the law, they also didn't even keep the sacrificial system to cover their mistakes for the law. We blew the whole thing. There's this book that I, that I read not too, too long ago, or a number of years ago now. It's called The Year of Living Biblically by A.J. Jacobs. It's not a Christian book. It's more of a funny book. And A.J. Jacobs, uh, I think he's a writer for GQ magazine or Esquire magazine or something like that. He's written a few different books. And uh, he describes himself at the beginning of the book, and I love this description of himself. He said, my, my heritage is Jewish. He said, but if you look at my life, I am Jewish in the same way that the Olive Garden is Italian, which I love that line. <laughs> he said, I haven't really followed that religion very closely. So in the book, he says, here's what I'm going to do. For an entire year, I am going to live out in the middle of New York City every Old Testament law that exists in the book. And he wrote down hundreds of laws. And for the entire year, he decided that he was going to try to live these out. And so if, there's some pretty funny pictures of him, you know, on the subway with his long beard and white clothes and his own chair that he has to bring with him everywhere he goes. So he's sitting somewhere that's pure. And he writes in the book, he said, he said one of the things that he realized is that is, it is absolutely impossible to keep God's law. That's what became clear to him in this year. It is impossible. And so he actually got to the point where he decided just to try to keep one law for one day. 
like that he would get through the day keeping one law. And I remember when he got to the day that he was not going to lie. And he got up that morning and he said, I love this, he said, he said you know, at living in New York, it takes an am amazing cultural revolution personally to get through the entire day without lying. And so he, he, he got uh, up and he went downstairs in his little apartment there, or a townhouse in, in, in New York. And uh, his wife was washing the dishes and his three-year-old son was in the high chair. His toddler son was in his seat. And uh, his son said, I want a bagel. And he said to his wife, he wants a bagel. And his wife said, we don't have any bagels. But yesterday, I gave him a piece of toast. I told him it was a bagel, and he was fine. <laughs> and so he said, well, I can't do that. Uh, I can't tell him toast is a bagel. And so what he did is he walked over to his little son, and he said, he said buddy, um, we don't have any bagels in the house. Sorry to tell you. But yesterday, mom gave you toast, said it was a bagel, and you liked it. So what I can do is I can give you toast today, and, and then, uh, you know, it's the same thing you had yesterday. Well, you know exactly what happened. The kid freaked out. He's throwing things, milk cup going across the room. He's screaming and crying that he wants a bagel. And finally, A.J. Jacobs, five minutes into his no-lying day, says, fine, I'll get you a bagel. I'll get you a bagel. Uh, Toasts some bread and hands it to him and says, there's your bagel. And already it was over. And he said, he had this interview with NPR that I was reading, and he said, he said in his interview with NPR, and he said it honestly with no um, flippancy. He said, I just realized in this year how much I sin. I sin all the time. And he said, it's not until you start paying attention to God's law that you realize how much you sin. And I'll tell you, I think that's part of the reason that we don't pay much attention to God's law. Because if you really start to look at it, even if you try to get through the Ten Commandments, especially how Jesus talks about them, you start to realize we don't do well at all here. And so then we have this conundrum. It seems very complex. If you look at Deuteronomy chapter 28, which is a key chapter in understanding all of Scripture, God gives his people blessing and curses. He says, if you will keep my law, I will bless you. But if you fail to keep my law, I will curse you. Half that chapter is all the blessings. Dr. Yarborough, uh, president of the uh, Dallas Theological Seminary, says it's pretty much crops and kids. The blessings are crops and kids. I like that summary. It works for me. You get, you get provision, provision and children. Uh, the curses. The curses. Uh, bad things that will happen to the people. And as you read through the rest of the Old Testament, those history books, as you read through the words of the prophets, Deuteronomy 28 comes up over and over and over again as this foundational principle when the Israelites are going through exile and when they're going through good times and difficult times, it's all back to whether or not they can keep this law. I think what the greatest value of the covenant is for me is that it reminds me of the complexity of my relationship with the Lord. 
I think we're prone to flatten that relationship and make it one-dimensional. And some of us, rather than hold on to the tension of law and love, which are in every single one of these, because no matter how much God says, if you break my covenant, if you don't uphold my laws, then you are going to be cursed. He never, ever breaks his, his promise of love to his people. That's the beauty of the covenant. I will be with you. I will love you. You're my people. No matter how much we don't uphold the law side, no matter how much we don't trust and follow him, he never breaks this promise, the love that he has in the covenant to make a people out for himself, to bless the nations. He never goes back on this. And what we tend to do is we tend to flatten our relationship with God and make it very one-dimensional so that some of us look at the covenant and look at our relationship with God and we say, here's the deal in your relationship with the Lord. Unless you keep the law, God doesn't love you. And that's legalism. If you flatten it down to that, that's legalism. And if you've been in the church for 10 minutes, you came across it. Somebody said that to you. You danced at a party? God doesn't love you. Other people flatten it the opposite direction. It's so much of God's love. God, is, God loves you so much. It doesn't really matter what you do. That's relativism. Like God's good with it. But the covenant doesn't allow us to do either of those things. The covenant holds together law and love. And the beautiful thing about the covenant is all of us walk into the room today needing one or the other in our lives. Some of you could use a little bit of God's love in your life today. Some of you could be, need to be reminded that God loves you. And yeah, you can't keep his law. And yes, you failed. And yet other Christians looked at you and said, you're a lost cause. But God has never stopped loving you, and God has never abandoned you, and God has never forsaken you. Some of you need that truth this morning. And some of you need to know that your life is reflecting whether or not you're in relationship with God. And God's not good with you just doing what you feel like doing. God's not good with you deciding what's right and what's wrong. That's his role. And yes, he's never stopped loving you, but you've been in that position deciding what's right and what's wrong for so long that you've lost all conviction and you've lost guilt and you've lost shame and you're actually happy that you're at that point that you no longer feel guilty. You've been set free from all that guilt and condemnation that you used to feel when you did things apart from God's law. And you need to be reminded that, yeah, God loves you. But when you are in relationship with him, he calls you to a standard of living. The theologian and pastor Sinclair Ferguson, I love the way he put this. He said, he said, you know, some of us, our consciences are screwed on a little too tight. And we need to counter the covenants of God and let him loosen those up a little bit. Be reminded that God loves us. And some of us, they're just screwed on too loose. And we need the covenant to tighten them down a little bit. 
and remind us that God calls us to a certain way of living, that he calls us to holy life. And I don't know where you are this morning, but you're probably in one of those two places. The amazing thing about God's love is once this covenant reveals that we can't live up to this, God's not done. God's not done making covenants. And Paul makes it very clear. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8, on our timeline that was here, now we're back, we're way over here. He makes very clear in Romans chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, he says this. He says, there is now, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Even with all the blessings and curses, there's no condemnation. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Jesus Christ from the law of sin and death. And what's Paul saying there? Yes, the fact that, that, that you are in relationship with God and have received the love that comes through Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of sin and everything else that we're going to talk about more next week. You have received that love. There's no condemnation for what you do, for you. But you've been set free from this law, but you've entered into a new one. The law of the spirit of life. And here's the deal with covenants. Covenants reveal inside of us how we fall short. And covenants empower us to go and live the life that God calls us to. Covenants reveal our need for God's love, our need for his grace. But then through the covenant in Jesus Christ that we'll talk about, we are empowered to go and keep God's law. And you have to hold the two in tension. God's law and God's love. If you're trying to keep the law in order to earn God's love, you're out of balance. You receive God's love and are empowered to go and live out the law. If you have received God's love and you feel like that sets you free from following any sort of law. You need to understand that God's love comes at a great cost. And it's to empower us to live the life he calls us to live. I'm going to invite our worship team to come forward as we close this morning. And I invite you, if you would, would you bow your head and close your eyes with me? So I don't know where you are this morning, but some of us walk into this room and we get the idea that God calls us to be holy. Like we get the idea that God has a standard and we know because people have told us and that we feel it, that we do not live up to that standard. I want to remind you this morning that God loves you, that God is with you, that God sees your need for a Savior, and he's provided one in Jesus Christ. 
And if you're here this morning and you are so aware of God's love, but you've gotten very used to sin in your life, God is calling you through the power of his spirit to live differently. To be the light on the hill. To be the seasoning in a lost world. To live differently, not so that you might earn God's love, but to live differently so that when people would see your good works and they would praise your Father in heaven. So wherever you are this morning, would you enter into worship today? And would you receive what you what you need to hear this morning from God's covenant? Allow your conscience to be screwed down a little more tightly or allowed it to be loosened by the grace and mercy of our Savior. God, we thank you for your desire for relationship with your people. Thank you that you did not leave us off on our own. But God, you provide a way for us to be in covenantal relationship with you. We receive that through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Thank you that you did not leave us on our own, left to condemnation when we couldn't live up to your law, but you kept your end of the bargain, showing us great love and mercy and grace. Lord, I pray by the power of your Holy Spirit at work inside of us that we would so be able to live the life that you called us to so that the world around would notice and they would say, what is different about those people? And we could say, God is different about us. His love at work within us is different about us. The relationship that we have with the king and ruler of this world is different about us. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me and let's close out our time together.